Welcome to Life on Plato's Cave. My name is Mario Veen. When we read Plato's Allegory of the Cave, we can ask ourselves, is the world we are experiencing and seeing right now just a projection of the mind? What if we live in a kind of illusion? Saying that we live in a kind of illusion does not mean that there is no actual world. There's an actual wall on which the shadows are projected, and an actual fire that projects them, and the shadows themselves, as projections, they are actually there. It's just that when I'm in the cave, and there's a shadow of a statue of a cat being projected on the wall, in my experience I don't see a shadow, I see a cat. But the cat I see is not actually there. In this episode we will discuss the question of reality from three different perspectives. The first perspective is that of neuroscience. How do we think? How does the brain work? What is the relationship between the world and our experience of that world? The second perspective is that of embodiment. We do not only get to know the world by looking at it and thinking about it, but by moving around in it, touching it, interacting with it. Dance and martial arts are examples of embodied forms of knowledge, or we could say the wisdom of the body. Then there's the Buddhist perspective. In Buddhism, the idea is that we live in a world of projections but that there are practices that can help us purify the mind and see through these illusions. For instance, meditation, or practicing loving-kindness, or studying Buddhist texts. It's very rare to meet someone who embodies all of these three perspectives. And that's why I'm so happy that our guide today is Marike van Vught. Marike is a neuroscientist, Buddhist and ballet dancer, and we will speak about science, mind, and dance. Marike is an assistant professor in the Cognitive Modeling Group at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. She obtained her PhD in the Neuroscience Program of the University of Pennsylvania, and she did a postdoc at Princeton University. Marike has been meditating since early childhood and practices Tibetan Buddhism in the Dzogchen tradition. She's also an amateur classical ballet dancer, and she has even published on ballet as a contemplative practice. The main question that guides Marike's research is how do we think? In what ways do we mind wander? And how can we make our thinking more adaptive through contemplative practices such as mindfulness and meditation? In our lab, Marike uses mathematical models and techniques to better understand those very complex data. Welcome, Marike. Thank you for speaking with me today. I'm glad to be here. This is a podcast about interdisciplinary philosophy. I think you're pretty much an embodiment of interdisciplinarity. If I look at your website, what you're uh, busy with in your life, science, mind, and dance, you say on your website. Right. Yep. Which one came first in your life? Was it the, the meditation or neuroscience or dance? I would say uh, the meditation, um, because that's a, that's a pretty funny story. When I was a kid, probably about six or seven years old, the uh, mother of a friend of mine 
um, was meditating. Um, and somehow I always found that very fascinating, even though I did, had no idea what that was supposed to be. Um, so yeah, and then I started to pretend meditate as well. Um, we went to like, we put on incense. And uh, <laughs> anyway, that, that was my introduction to meditation. Um, but I'm also chronically interdisciplinary. I guess my, my science really got started when I was um, uh, got my bachelor degree at uh, University College Utrecht, which is this very broad liberal arts and sciences college. And I was one of the first years there at that time. Um, university colleges uh, didn't really exist. And in the Netherlands, um, the higher education was strictly disciplinary. And so everybody was asking, like, what is this about, you know, where you study a little bit of everything and you can just make up your own program consisting of courses from science and social sciences and humanities. And in fact, you were required to do courses outside your major um, so I really love that and I still do. And that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I got really into to the science and the dance was sort of, um, I got started with that. Um, well, I was actually also performing as a little kid. I would always do circuses and stuff um, to probably the annoyance of my parents and, and other unwilling people to, who had to be our audience. Uh, but then uh, it, with ballet only got started when I was like 11. Uh, I encountered a book on ballet in the library. And uh, <laughs> this is how I came across ballet and I was fascinated by it. And then I set foot in the dance studio and I, I was sold. I was basically getting started with that. And I never um, stopped until now. Um, and then I, at that time, um, also re uh, wanted to become a ballet dancer. So I'm always uh, joking that I'm uh, um, uh, a failed ballet dancer and that's why I became a scientist, which is <laughs> pretty true because <laughs> oh. I first auditioned and then didn't get into any professional schools. And then, uh, well, you know, science. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, it's quite fascinating because I think typically uh, if you encounter that combination, usually, I think as a, a little girl or a little boy, you, you see somebody dance and you start to imitate it. And then maybe you learn about meditation or science from the books, but you learned about ballet from the books. Yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah. We went to the same university college. And uh, I really liked it as well that you, you had a class, you know, from Spanish to statistics to uh, politics and looking for the connections between all those things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think it also really helps in, uh, in the field where I am um, uh, right now in neuroscience and artificial intelligence, where being able to communicate with people from many different fields is very helpful. How, how old were you when you started meditating? Probably about six or seven. Um, I'm not sure whether I would call it meditating. It's just like doing something that I thought was meditating. And then I started to read books probably a couple of years later when I could actually access that. And I only properly really learned it when I... Um, was probably about 16 or 17 and I got some good books and started to take some courses on Buddhism. Um, so, yeah. Hmm. And do you remember, like, did, did you have any experiences that made you want to go on? Because it's one thing for uh, 
a child to just start sitting with your eyes, eyes closed a little bit, but it gets boring after a while, right? Um, what, what, what was it that made you go on with this? Well, um, so I'm not sure whether I how whether I was anything consistent or but I, I, I kept being fascinated by it. I didn't th I don't think I had particular experiences, but I've always been, I guess, kind of curious about the mind and what's behind life and what drives us as humans and um, what does it mean to be a good human being? And I guess all of those questions in some way are also related to meditation because meditation is much more than sitting there with your eyes closed in a mm. way. I, I, I think the most proper description that I've heard is, is, is sort of getting to know your own mind and also invest using your mind to investigate reality. Um, and yeah, I think that's been on a larger uh, level been my fascination since I was a child. Um, <laughs> was a weird child, clearly. <laughs> but, well, weird in a good way. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a really interesting description of meditation that um, getting to know your own mind or getting to know yourself. Um, do you think meditation also makes you a better scientist? Um, this is a very tricky question because um, that has definitely been the discourse um, uh, in an organization I'm in, uh, involved in the, called the Mind and Life Institute, which facilitates dialogues between um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and scientists. And there, there have been some claims, you know, that if you practice meditation, you get to be a better scientist because um, you're cultivating these qualities of being um, having better, more accurate attention and that more, you could say, metacognition. So cognize or thinking about your own mind and being able to observe your own mind and knowing what it's doing. Um, but whether meditation really improves that that much, I'm not sure. And um, whether it reduces bias, I'm also not sure. There's been some really interesting criticism on that topic by Evan Thompson, a very interesting interdisciplinary philosopher as well. Um, so, yeah, but I, I guess it is maybe at least another tool for uh, especially if you're a neuroscientist and you're studying the mind yeah. then uh, a, a wonderful colleague of mine ken paller um, uh, had this very interesting and and i kind of like that formulation he says you know in my lab i'm studying the people the mind from the outside in other people i'm studying other people's minds and then in my meditation practice i'm studying my own mind so they're like complementary viewpoints and I don't think we can say like one is more right than the other but um, uh, using meditation as a tool to also study your own mind and manipulate your own mind and uh, play around with it and seeing what it can do is I think yeah that that's a very interesting tool um, for a scientist even though you can't really publish a paper about it that's a whole different you know there's a field that's sort of trying to explore this is called micro phenomenology hmm. a very careful examination of the subjective nature of the mind 
but that's not a very um, uh, well accepted kind of field. So it, 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 it's always tricky. There's always this tension between the subjective and objective, at least in neuroscience and psychology. So yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess maybe it's different because I work mostly in social science and the humanities. And if you're a human being studying other human beings, it's, it's very important to be aware of your own positionality and your own, well, you mentioned phenomenology. So you always have a certain perspective on the situation. And um, if I'm correct in your discipline, it's more about trying to exclude that, right? To to get to the, the objective um, take on things that are not dependent on, you know, your yourself as a scientist while in social science, at least some of the uh, areas that I'm uh, invested in, you are actually the instrument yourself. If you're, if you're doing ethnomethodology or you're, you're doing an interview even, mm -hmm. as an interviewer, you're part of the interview. But I guess when you're studying the mind, it may be, do you agree with that or is it more nuanced than this? I personally don't uh, agree with it, but I guess that's also because of my my personal, my Buddhist background that I believe that, um, well, and I think it's kind of, there's some scientific evidence for that as well, that you can't really separate the mind from everything around. Um, surrounding it. it it's in a way our mind is continuously shaped by the world around us yeah. and uh, so thinking that you can isolate it and taking out all these other influences and sort of distancing yourself from it is kind of an illusion but of course we're trying to approximate that a little bit in lab studies um, but even then of course there's always the influence of the uh, investigator that you cannot really take out so i think it's just an easy um approximation that a lot of people don't really think of as um uh, as being there but in fact when you start to think about it um yeah we cannot really completely purely objectively um doing any science really because in any science also you know, your biases as a scientist will influence the kind of conclusions you draw from your data and how you process your data and how you interpret your data and how you design your experiments and what hypotheses you're even considering. No. So I think that idea of, of realizing that there is a subjective dimension to science is, I think, very helpful and and. Um, maybe this this um, a, a wonderful thing that we can also learn from the more social sciences and humanities and philosophy like the phenomenology tradition so yeah mm. but it's hard because i think in if i'm trying to publish that's not really the kind of no. angle that would be appreciated so <laughs> yeah that's actually the it's also <laughs> been part of a, a study called the for instance uh, uh, the social studies of science where, for instance, they look at language use of scientists in uh, publications and public domains, where you also speak in a, you always speak in a passive voice, right? The, the research has been, the experiment has been carried out as if there was no one to carry it out. And then if you look at how scientists speak in private, it's uh, quite a different matter, right? 
Yeah, although I would say that that's not really true in my field either. No, um, no. and I, I always tell my students not to do that because it drives no. me crazy to read that. So I think that that's a fairly yeah. recent development huh? that you yeah. uh, uh, acknowledge your own role in uh, this. And even in, um, I think one really interesting concept about the previous episode, we also spoke about quantum mechanics and of course, you have to be very careful with translating concepts from physics to, you know, everyday uh, language. But entanglement, I think, is a really interesting concept. And uh, there's one article by a researcher called Tambuku. She does archival research and she actually describes how even the bus ride and the people she meets on the bus and the building she works in and her previous, how, how all of that uh, is yeah influences uh, her work. I think even kind of the the hunches that you get or the hypothesis that you generate. Yeah. I mean, we have ideas all the time, but why do you go with? You can't investigate them out all. So you also have probably an intuition. Hey, there might be something here in uh, yep. this direction. Yep. Yeah. So now I'm very curious. How did you first hear about Plato's allegory of the cave? Yeah, the, the, that's also quite an early life story. I don't really remember exactly when, but um, as a kid, I read this book uh, called Sophie's World. Um, it was an introduction to philosophy, which I found fascinating. I think I might have been around uh, 12, 13 or so at the time. And, um, and there it went through the whole history of philosophy, uh, which was very interesting because, as I said, I was kind of curious about what is reality and what is the mind and how does that all of that work and so yeah of course there was Plato and the cave and I thought also that concept I mean it's in a way it's kind of similar to the uh, the matrix um, the ideas that you see in this movie the matrix but of course the matrix came later than that age um, <laughs> um, or in a way the Truman show uh, this idea that there may be a, a, a world that's quite different that's more real than the current world that we are experiencing or what's yeah. behind all of that so yeah uh, I found it fascinating and oh, I mean the whole book really blew my mind I very, very vividly remember that and I think there was some chapter about how we're all um, breathing in molecules of Caesar um, uh, of the, the you know the emperor Julius Caesar and uh, did just a massive scale of the universe and I was totally my mind was blown for sure mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, but I, I definitely remember uh, Plato's cave as well as one of those memories from the book. Yeah. And how do you look at it now as uh, we have to in my in conversation with you, we always have to say as a Buddhist or as a neuroscientist or yeah. maybe even as a dancer. I don't know if there are yeah. any connections, but yeah, I'm just curious. Well, and in a way, they, they do touch on all of those things, because I think for me, uh, Plato's cave is about, um, you know, the search for the reality that's maybe beyond what we can perceive. And so maybe the, the, the closest connection I can draw is as a Buddhist, um, because um, in the tradition that I'm following, which is the Dzogchen tradition in the Tibetan Buddhism, it's all about the nature of the mind. And the idea here is that 
um, are, what we are currently experiencing is just projections of the mind and the mind is continuously creating the world that we're seeing. It's constructing it on the basis of its perceptual input, but also its um, uh, predictions and expectations, all of those things. Um, and the whole goal of the Buddhist path is then to, in a way, purify the mind or get rid of these fabrications to perceive the world in, you could say, in a more pure way. That's always sounds very puritanic, um, but it's, I think, a little bit more uh, in a way that you can just be like a, it's described as being like a child where you don't really have that much judgment about this is good this is bad you can just be there and and according to the buddhist teachings this is the this is the only way to really be happy in a sustainable way that you're sort of engaging in the world not really um expecting things um but just happy as is um so and I think that that that's one version of Plato's cave the sort of that you know we're currently experiencing the world in this a bit of a clouded way in a messy way and then um, uh, as a Buddhist we're trying to work with our mind so that uh, we are in maybe in, in a very simple way we're engaging with it in a more sustainable um, um, and happy way. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah, and then as a scientist, of course, I'm also constantly trying to figure out how the mind works. And, how, you know, I do that by doing experiments, by putting electrodes on people's heads and um, uh, to try to go beyond just how our mind works on everyday level, um, but instead just to discover the fundamental principles that drive it. And in particular, my lab is currently working on trying to understand how, when, and why we get distracted, what, what's happening then, and uh, what are the kind of principles that make distraction more adaptive and less adaptive. So that's going, again, beyond the current reality as we're experiencing it, experiencing it and trying to find general principles, sort of a theory of how that works, and then testing that theory. Of course, that's the whole purpose of science, and then yeah. using that um, but as a the the other and as a dancer, um, I would say in a way there there's this beautiful film by a, uh, a another very interdisciplinary scientist called Francisco Varela, and um, he was saying that you know art and science and spirituality they're all different ways of knowing knowing the world, and as I've, I've done some experiments with dancers where they were using movements to research the world as well, mm. to explore the mind and to explore each other. And um, in a way, that's what dancing is too. It's, it's also a language to try to, to experience a different way of experience in the world. And when I do ballet um, in particular, it's almost like sometimes going into a different reality, um, a different place where I can not be me, but I can explore all these different emotions and feelings and um, see how far I can reach to some level of perfection in my body and in my mind. So um, I think in that way, that that's sort of a very loose connection to the idea but um uh, there 
in a way also different ways of exploring reality yeah well i'm a terrible dancer so i wouldn't know how to say what to say about that but i know from watching ballet or theater or something like that it's also kind of a setting where you're like in the cave you're in a theater and um you're for at least for the hour or two hours that it lasts you're outside of your everyday reality and you you make this journey right and uh if it's a good journey then um yeah especially with i mean you can it's easier to imagine maybe with a, a film or something where there's very clearly a story or a book or or something like that but with ballet especially are you more like modern ballet or classical ballet more, more classical classical yeah. yeah okay but those those do often contain stories right if uh yeah, but even I guess for me, if they don't contain stories, yeah. um, nowadays I'm more attracted to the ones that I guess the more modern ones because the classical ones I've already seen a million times. <laughs> but uh, even though they, they do remain beautiful. You know, the swan dies in the end, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Well, actually, there's different endings to Swan Lake depending on which version you get. But, really? Yeah, <laughs> there's a. I, I'm way too much of a ballet nerd. <laughs> I realize that when I sometimes go to workshops with other recreational dancers, and then you know, together with my fellow ballet nerd friends, I will always know all the choreographers and the different versions. Yeah. <laughs> it's like very funny. But anyway, um, uh, I think regardless of whether the ballet has a story, I think it's more like particular ways of moving. They mm. Um, affect both your own mind as well as the one um, that's watching it's creating some kind of maybe a mood or an emotion I think for me that's more what it's about whether there's a story or not is irrelevant and there's also something about um, so so I was thinking about this um, in the past year when uh, we were all locked in our homes and for me uh, ballet was really a way um, to still have a world to explore, even when I was in my home. So I've been uh, taking ballet classes with teachers I knew from the US and teachers I knew from India, um, where I travel also to do research and um, to develop as a dancer and to reconnect with those teachers from across the world were in a way ways to to have a bigger world um, through that process of dancing and learning dance and communicating with these people from around the globe. And I got to know uh, a whole lot of adult dancers from across the globe um, who are all just doing it for fun. Uh, like Ballerinas by Night is, uh, you know, one of the groups <laughs> that I think is a very beautiful name to, to um, explore that. So in that way, um, it allowed me a different kind of reality than my work um, to, yeah, to sort of maybe, um, it's like in a way, maybe it, it almost like a fantasy world of a little kid and I uh, still just never grew up. I still love that, <laughs> that you go to this place where you're trying to pursue perfection, even though you, you know you'll never reach there, but it's still, it's such a different way. Uh, I mean, ballet came from the... Um, uh, the 14th to 15th century courts um, in Italy. Um, and you still have some of those 
courtly manners and it, it's this very distinguished um, way of moving with very beautiful lines and so it's in a way in a very imperfect world you're trying to approach this perfect world um, through through the movement and through the specific system of dance so I think that's been and then together with the connections with other humans that are from their own computers trying to do the same is is, is a very beautiful way to connect and and yeah what I wanted to say was that one teacher put it oh um I mean ballet is not only just you know affecting it is probably good for your brain um, uh, and good for your body for sure um, but it also just feeds your soul there's something about that whatever the soul may be I don't know um, but it, it's something that goes beyond just the mind and the brain I think um, because it has this quality of the, the feeling to it too but then you know one interesting story I also wanted to tell maybe related to the the, the the mind and the brain and the, and the soul was that I recently saw this interesting um, uh, Netflix series that really touched me. It's a it's called Navilera and it's um, a Korean series about an old man who um, discovers he has Alzheimer's disease and then he. Um, realizes that he's always his whole life he's been working to make a living for his family and his kids and then he's never really pursued his dream and as a little kid he wanted to become a ballet dancer and um, he decides that at age 60s or 70s somewhere um, he decides he's gonna and having alzheimer he's gonna learn ballet and it's a very beautiful concept and you, you, you see his journey and you see slowly his mind fading um, but the ballet works on a different level. It works probably on the level of, uh, you know, the body and the body remembers more that even when the, the conscious memories might fade, the body still remembers and the feelings still remember. And I thought it was such a beautiful um, way of putting that. And you can see the, the, the person's sort of soul really still being there, even when he cannot remember the names of the people around him anymore. And uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a very beautiful meditation also on uh, aging and uh, reality. <laughs> and I'm a Tai Chi practitioner and in Tai Chi there's uh, this concept, uh, I think in, in English you say the body mind. So um the idea that that the mind is not just confined to the brain but that your body also has a certain uh, intelligence uh, in moving around in the world yeah is that something that you that connects to what you said before um for sure um i would also say there is even some uh some scientific evidence for that as well so i think in in mind body practices including tai chi and yoga and maybe you could even classify um, ballet on that too i've written a paper about this uh, idea um is that you know, you can't in a way really separate the mind from the body because, for example, everyone knows that your posture will affect your mood, right? So that's on a very simple level. And also there is some emerging evidence that, for example, the brain oscillations, which is also one thing that I um, do a lot of work on in my, my lab, the brain oscillations are related um, to, for example, the, the, the beating of the heart. And there's also brain oscillations, not just in your brain, but or, well, oscillations similar to brain oscillations in, in your peripheral, peripheral nervous system. So outside the brain. 
So, and then there's emerging evidence that also the, the of course, the gut bacteria um, are somehow affecting our emotions and our mood. So there, there's a strong connection between the, the body and the mind and the brain. Um, and I think a lot of these mind-body practices sort of take this into account. I think it's in, in our Western world, we sort of have had for the longest time this paradigm that there is a body and there's a mind and they're in a way separate or there's yeah. a brain and the body they are sort of separate things but there is that, that's also for for a large part i think due to an interpretation of plato's allegory right that uh, i personally don't agree with but with the two worlds so we have the world of the the senses uh the body and then we have the perfect world of mathematics and forms but yeah yeah yeah, and then of course with Descartes is is where it really also started to separate quite strongly. So um, yeah, that's um, unfortunately that um, I guess sometimes that's that's a bit um, yeah creates un unnecessary distinctions and tensions where it doesn't need to be. So if I'm hearing you correctly, your your experience is that um, ballet. Is, is also a way of, of getting to know the world or a, yeah. a certain knowledge moving around in it, but also feeling a certain sense of freedom and also connecting uh, to others, even across the world. Yeah. Other ballet nerds uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that know sure. all the different endings to, uh, to Swan Lake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's also on a more subtle level, it's just... Um, um, yeah, being able to express your feelings. Um, so I, I really love when I have strong emotions, um, and a strong disappointment or happiness or um, frustration to I, I will just dance. Um, and that's really helpful for me to, um, yeah, to use the different medium than the words because I'm using words all day. I, I mean, I can, especially during this pandemic, I kind of joke like, that I'm uh, talking to my computer all day, which is pretty much true. And probably it's the uh, same for you. <laughs> so, Speaking of Plato's cave, how do we know the other the people on the other side are real, right? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I mean, actually, it's been it's becoming more uh, crucial than ever. Like, will we know? And and with the deep fake technologies and whatever, this whole distinction between reality and, and well, what, well, what is reality anyway? I guess that's a very interesting question that you can also ponder. And, and um, I'm also doing research um, together with Tibetan monks um, that are from a, a slightly different tradition within Tibetan Buddhism than I'm personally following. Um, it's a more scholastic tradition, a more philosophical tradition. And they spent like um, their education 20 years um, exploring philosophically, like what is the mind and what is reality, trying to decompose it into like its fundamental particles through you could say thought experiments. Yeah. Um, and then you can find if you even do a, a, a tiny approximation of that investigation, um, you will find very, very quickly that it's almost impossible to know what is reality. And it's mind blowing to think that way, like even to just really investigate, like, where do I end and where does something outside me 
begin um, is is hard to know. Like where at what point, if you really drill down to the level of particles, like where where does me end and as I, I recently had a very interesting experience. It was a little bit disconcerting, but um, <laughs> I, I had a parasite in my body and then it mm. came out and I was, uh, the, the parasite is like, also, what, what is that? Like, and then suddenly like, it's part of your body and then it's not, and it, it's kind of scary. And of course we are like that all the time. Like we have a, a lot of bacteria in our guts that are also sort of we feel it's part of us but are they really part of us but they are in a way different so it's even with just very simple questions if you start to think about it it's yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah but in um uh the the next episode and the episode after that uh we're going to be speaking about philosophy of technology and uh the next one with uh, dominic petman he wrote this book called infinite Distra infinite distraction which uh, you might like given your research topic but uh yeah that that's also the idea with um technology that we have this idea that we are that there's the human and there's the technology uh and they're separate um but if you start to look, I mean, what is technology? Your your clothes is technology. Writing is technology. Uh, and we wouldn't be even able to, to speak to each other and people wouldn't be able to listen to us without technology. So where does that end? Where does your ha hand end and where does the tool begin? Yeah. Yeah, because also I've offloaded a large part of my memory to technology these yeah. days. And I mean, actually... Yeah ranging technology ranging from the smartphone to the uh to the um you know the old pen pencil and paper i guess in a way that's also technology yeah. um, but then also i've been blown my mind's also been blown by thinking back like probably 15 years ago is when i went to the us to to do my phd and at that time I, when I left, there, there were no cell phones, barely any cell phones. And I would communicate with my parents maybe once or twice a month. I would call them with a calling card uh, from, the, from the public phone. And now, like, we're video calling all the time, all kinds of people. Uh, it's, it, I mean, just earlier today, I had a meeting where um, with my Tibetan monk colleagues who were presenting me some statistics from data it's 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 crazy and and yet um now we've been here in the pandemic of course and then going slightly out of the pandemic so i've had online ballet classes and then the same people in in-person ballet classes and then back to online and back to in person and and yet there is something so special about being with another human in the room but um yeah it's um uh, that that's also something that's that's really interesting so there's there's a lot more blending i think of technology in our lives and yeah. and how we can communicate and i almost in a way through the screen i do feel i'm partly there um and to be you know especially when with people that i know and i've met in real life uh, i can sort of feel them being there but yet being in the same room is still different <laughs> Yeah, but even when, you know, before, when you weren't able to communicate with people, for instance, across the world, you can still really feel connected to someone, right? And uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And 
and one one nice link that that I see with um, uh, maybe with uh, Buddhism as well is the connection between technology and uh, transmission. Because, for instance, uh, 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 philosopher of technology uh, Bernard Stiegler he talks a lot about uh, how technology is about transmission and how even uh, even going back to Plato's cave um, you know the technology of writing that's what was a large part in this explosion in ancient Greece of uh, uh, of all the maybe they were of course they were thinking of, uh, before but they were able to write it down and we are able to read the allegory of the cave which yeah. again has been transmitted and translated uh, yeah. to different languages and different interpretations and everything like that and, and yeah at the same time so i think this is touches on some really interesting topics because actually to get back to um my monk colleagues um what we, what we encounter there when i do research with them is and it i think it's changing a little bit but um when I first encountered them, especially the communication through email was very difficult because we're in the West, in the Western scientific system, for sure, very much the communication is written. And I think this maybe started um, with the invention of the book press, right? Mm. And then the communication, the predominant communication started to be more written. In fact, I Last Saturday, I had an uh, uh, interview with Rosanne Herzberger and uh, another person who was talking about Erasmus and how that was the time they started to transmit ideas through written pamphlets and books. And, and that was really a, a transformation because until that time, there, the, the ideas moved very slowly because you know you, you weren't able to spread multiple copies very easily. I mean, maybe a few, but not hundreds or thousands. Um, but then again, going back to the Tibetan monks, they've been using this oral transmission system for um, literally more than a thousand years, um, where they memorize the scriptures and then they debate them and then they really get also the oral transmission of all the texts, uh, which really means that somebody reads them out. And only then you're allowed to study the text. So there's something about this oral dimension that's really important and it's only i found that i can only i could only get contact with them once i met them in real life and now we can have email conversations kind of okay <laughs> and mostly still in-person comfort or even through zoom digital speaking conversations are the best way to communicate so i think there's something about that um that's that's very um uh, that has a strong effect on the, how the ideas um, develop and um, yeah. um, transmit to other people. Yeah, my impression is that transmission is very central in basically all forms of Buddhism, right? Where uh, I think they, they generally start with Buddha, mm -hmm. um, with already an initial transmission where he uh, something with a flower and he smiles and somebody gets it in the audience and then this then is the first uh, I, I would say Buddhist master and uh, I mean there are probably different versions of the stories right but they're, they're always transmission stories right of a Buddhist master yeah. that that transmits something to yeah. uh, a student 
Well, actually, it, it, it gets even more interesting, which is that in this uh, tradition that I'm following, the Dzogchen tradition, the idea here is that the first original transmission was mind-to-mind -mind transmission. So it wasn't with words or symbols. It was just the mind could directly somehow transmit the realization of, of how the reality is. But then, of course, that's only possible if the student has already been so tuned into the master that they can understand. And then the next level of transmission is through symbols. So maybe show in the traditional examples, like showing a crystal or something or a mirror and then the, the person already gets it and then the third transmission is the one that we're using which is through words and then the interesting thing is that actually if you talk about the historical buddha um 3500 years ago or so um he his transmission was through words um and basically he had realized this enlightenment and then for, for a while, he thought, yeah, nobody can understand this. So I'm just going to meditate in the forest. And then um, um, at some point, there were some events that led him to actually still try to explain to some um, of his students. And then he just gave these oral teachings. And um, only after his death, um, his students thought, well, actually, we should probably write this down and compile it and or no actually writing down wasn't even existing at that time so they said okay we just have to gather these teachings and the one with the best memory they have to remember them all and so what if you look at the buddhist scriptures what you will see is uh, the, the traditional sutras always start with thus have i heard and then it's the you know, the different disciples of the Buddha that will tell the story of what the Buddha is supposed to have said. Um, oh. So it's, it's really implies this, this, this storytelling part of it. And oh. only later they've been written down, which is, well, probably like with all religions, you have different versions of all the scriptures because it's been, it took a while before um, all of it got written down. Oh. Yeah, transmission is in the cave as uh, plays a role in this way as well, I think, because um, if you see the, let's say, the Buddha's journey to enlightenment as uh, going, uh, traveling to the surface, um, then um, in many versions of the story, uh, it's that that's that's basically the explanation of Plato's cave, right? That mm. you're we're you know we're here in illusion, but then we realize the truth, and that's it. But yeah. in the story, uh, the, the person goes back into the cave again. And that's something else that in that, uh, I didn't know this, what you just told me, but there, there are, for instance, uh, Kuan Yin, who, which is also important in China. And um, I think the story there is that, that she reached enlightenment, but that she heard a baby crying or something. And then she came back uh, into, yeah, into uh, the, yeah, let's say the cave again yeah um to um uh and and, and this the concept of the bodhisattva i don't know if i pronounce it right is yeah. also if you've already reached enlightenment but you decide to come back into uh, uh into this world again of course then the challenges in plato's cave uh he described well uh what imagine you try to free the other people from the chains while they try to kill you or at least whatever you say it won't make sense because they will ask you so which shadow is this and what are you saying about uh, mm -hmm. uh they're still there so yeah things like words and everything won't make sense and then yeah it would be uh interesting to look at 
what kind of transmission is taking place there because what what is so there's obviously there's verbal teaching in in buddhism there are texts but what is the role of meditation in this yeah so i remember um uh, also very vividly i was very struck um when i was first exploring buddhism by a book by uh, Mathieu Ricard, um, who is a French monk, who first was a scientist and then he became a monk. And um, that was very helpful to me because of course I came from this very scientific background as well. And, you know, in, in science, the idea is, well, you know, we should have reproducible kind of data. So that's why we need third person data and stuff like that. That's anyone can observe, you can put in a graph and you can publish, but, mm. Uh, of course, with meditation, the work is um, uh, the individual persons, they, they, the, the study of their own subjective mind. Um, and, and then according to the tradition, you reach all these phenomena. And then he said, well, you know, but the thing is, it's not like arbitrary um, because any person who follows these steps will get to these experiences. So it's just that to see it, it, it's not like some random, you, you have to somehow, you know, have this new insight that you get from like in, in the, the, the case with Plato's cave, you have to somehow, you know, get out of the cave. Um, in Buddhism, it's sort of, there's a path on how to get out of the cave. And so you just follow the steps and then slowly, slowly um, your, your mind will change. And of course, it's still hard to verify um, and, and, and kind of hard um, if you are following these steps, you, you, you do see, I guess, your mind changes a little bit, but whether you get enlightened, I don't know. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of hard to see where you are on the path and, and, and where that's leading and all of that. But I do see from the outside, it looks like some people are, are changing. So there's something happening there. Uh, and and people you know quite a number of people thousands uh not more uh people have followed these steps and sort of transformed their mind so i guess there must be something there because in that sense the observation is reproducible yeah and uh, i guess people also want to come back to meditation like you know what i said before if you start meditating it's not in the beginning is maybe not very pleasant or um it might it takes it takes something to actually drop everything that you're doing and sit down and be busy with your meditation and nothing else so i guess there must be something there why why it's so popular and i think in the west it's also uh increasing in popularity yeah i guess it's it's uh it, it, people can have lots of different motivations to practice meditation um if you're looking for uh, special and blissful experiences, I mean, you might get some, but traditionally that's not the point. And you will also be disappointed because most of the time it won't be like that. Um, for some people, they turn to meditation because they go through a lot of suffering and loss. Uh, they maybe lose some of their uh, close ones. And then they're searching for meaning and their, you know, meditation uh, or different meditation practices. I mean, there are so many traditions and, um, and paths in that direction. So I, I guess it's very hard to generalize. But for, for people, it allows them maybe to think in a very structured way more about life and then gives them some tools to change their minds. 
Um, and maybe to help them to regulate their emotions. And I think that's, that's one motivation that can definitely work for, um, for a lot of people. So I guess many of us are realizing we have a lot of stress and we have maybe um, some not so adaptive emotions. And then there's quite a few techniques from the meditation tradition that help you um, deal with that. And um, that ranges from in a very simple way, maybe culting, uh, cultivating pro-social qualities like kindness and compassion um, to these practices of meditation that really allow you to explore the mind in a, in a disciplined way. On the one hand, by observing what the mind does naturally. So meditation, um, unlike what a lot of people believe, it's not like a way to blank your mind <laughs> or to have a very quiet mind because your mind will do all kinds of stuff and that's that's good otherwise you would be dead right so there's nothing wrong with a mind being very busy that's just what the mind is but to just, it's not a way to stop thinking no for sure okay. not um but it is a way to to in a way realize that you can step outside your mind in a way you don't you are not your mind you can sort of observe your own thinking and and that's quite a monumental realization but then you can also probe this mind the thinking mind to really carefully um, investigate reality like this example we we talked about before of where does the hand end and the outside me uh, begin or, um, you know, how solid is this world really? If you think about it, um, it seems like this computer that we're talking to <laughs> right now um, is very solid, but we can also be pretty sure that uh, probably 20 years from now, the computer is no longer there. Um, it's in some uh, shape, maybe a different shape. <laughs> well, they're getting smaller anyway. Ed. First, yeah. it used to be a whole room and now it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, so um, things are changing and at what point are they changing? And if you really um, take on board those ideas, um, and, and I think maybe for all of us, this idea of change has become quite more, quite a bit more acute through the pandemic as now things are changing really quickly then you think yeah we're done with the pandemic and then no we're not done with the pandemic and things change again and again um, but that's always what life is and if you really take this on board um, it can make life a bit less uh, dramatic you can sort of feel a bit less sort of um, overwhelmed by it because you just realize oh yeah it's that's supposed to be changing. That's yeah. just how it works. You're not as affected by whether uh, it, it's raining or if there's sunshine or if you have a little bit more money or less money or if things go your way or they don't go your way. Yeah, because yeah. you you realize that uh, that that's just never constant and, and that if you are in the high, then there's no way that you can avoid getting to a low again. And it's just that's life mm -hmm. so i think those explorations are very very powerful meditative tools and the reason i would call them meditation rather than maybe philosophy is that rather than just thinking about it intellectually when you're reading the book like the wonderful book sophie's world although that had, did have on my in my case um a, a little bit of uh, what i said it blew my mind so it did sort of change me the way i thought 
Um, but in meditation, you're going through that again and again, so that slowly, slowly, your thought patterns are also changing by themselves. But you can't just knowing something intellectually doesn't immediately like make it a a thought pattern that you then constantly have, right? That you're then embodying. And so meditation is really the process, I think, of translating the abstract ideas into really an embodied reality so that it's not just that I know that things are changing intellectually. I mean, anyone who can think can think will realize that. But most of the time we forget and we sort of act as if the world is uh, sort of not changing. And we act as if we are completely separate from the world outside us. But if you think about it, that just is doesn't make sense so you have to remind yourself again and again and really explore it from all kinds of um, traditions or directions to um to realize that um to to make it more of an embodied reality and when you do that then when things change you're not becoming so um uh, annoyed by it because mm. you're become you're expecting it a bit more and then you can also be more open to other people um because you realize that yeah this is the nature of the world and i don't have to be so upset by it and without it sort of being like i shouldn't be upset by it and therefore i have to change my mind no it just becomes more natural and i think for me that's on a more profound level what the meditation is about but it's not like something that will change in a few weeks um probably it's more well for buddhists it would be multiple lifetimes <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah well but then maybe you've already done it for a few lifetimes so you have a head start right if you start who now. knows yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly and anyway it's better to start now than to start uh, tomorrow <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah for sure yeah. so um I can imagine. So this this podcast is about looking at life from different angles and whatever is going on in your life, uh, whoever is listening to this at the moment, which could be an intellectual question, but it could also be, uh, you know, maybe somebody cut you off in traffic and you're angry with it, or it could be something in your relationship. And uh, I can imagine that for all the millions of people who listen to this, they maybe have a certain idea about meditation or they haven't tried it. Is there maybe an exercise that, that we could do, like a simple exercise for, let's say somebody cut me off in, in traffic or I have a certain, I'm angry with somebody or something. Is there something you could do, a meditation that, that analyzes that? Mm -hmm. um, for sure. Um, when I'm angry at someone, um, and e uh, well, also when somebody cuts me off in traffic, if I I do, if I have the um, um, uh, the awareness <laughs> to 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 realize that there's something I can uh, that I can change my reaction, what I will do is um, well, there, there are so many things that you, you can do. One thing is to to just say okay i feel this emotion um and rather than just really starting to get more and more uh, annoyed with this person how dare he sort of cut me off in traffic or he's just totally like an asshole um for being angry at me and you know i'm right he's wrong or she's wrong whatever um you can also say oh interesting you know just observe what this 
does emotion feel like in your body, especially? And I think the body is very helpful for this because it's um, uh, it's sort of makes you immediately look uh, at a different at the situation from a different way. So you can sort of feel like where in my body do I feel the emotion? Is it in my chest or in my head or in my fingers? Probably most of the time it's not your fingers. <laughs> um, Unless you hit them, maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that would be probably very unfortunate if you get to that stage. So that would be one approach. Um, and then to really take a, take a moment to, to really just... Um, observe that and and very often that already diffuses the emotion but sometimes that doesn't work um uh, another approach that i find very helpful is to try to shift perspective so um for a lot of these things it it does require you to have a moment that you can not interact with the other person you need to have a quiet moment that you can just like usually when I do meditation practices, I first I would, you know, make sure I can uh, sit down and take a moment, take a few breaths to just, again, land in my body and, and find some space. And then um, I might imagine sort of what does the other person feel like, you know, maybe they were cutting me in traffic because they're, um, you know, they're rushing to the hospital and they're trying to get to um, uh, their, uh, their wife who's giving birth or something like that, right? So they, they have a different world and they might have just something going on and then you're not so important. Um, so that's, I, I typically find a very helpful um, approach. I also often find it very helpful and this can work sort of with all kinds of situations and emotions is um, there's these wonderful um, loving kindness practices where rather than focusing on the situation, you're just trying to um, wish well on other people. So you're just saying um, I could, you know, again, take a few moments um, to settle myself and, and, and um, catch my breath. And then I might just say, may you be happy may you be well, um, may you live with ease. Um, those are some sentences you can use, whichever phrases you use. And then you would just quietly um, repeat those to yourself so you don't have to say them out loud. Um, you can just repeat them to yourself. And you can also, typically it's good to start with first wishing yourself well and happy because very often when these emotions happen, uh, when somebody is angry at you, you feel terrible. Um, so it's probably good actually to first start with me to just to yourself wishing you well, because every person has the right to be happy. Um, and, you know, without being happy and content and comfortable, we cannot really be of much use for everyone else. So we'd start by saying, may you be happy, may you be healthy. May you live with ease, um, may you be peaceful. Um, and then you've sort of repeated that to yourself a couple of times and you're starting to settle and really try to mean it um, of course it has to be a bit of construction in the beginning but as you do this um, for a little bit it, it will become more real and it will start you can start to feel it and once you feel more okay in yourself then you can also say to the other person may you also be happy 
um, and may you be well. And then that immediately changes the dynamic, even if they've been nasty to you, they are still, you know, when you relate to them as another human being, they also want to be happy and they also, um, um, yeah, they might feel frustrated sometimes. And, and realizing that on a fundamental level, we all want to be happy, I think is a very powerful um, practice for me. So, um, yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> do, you do you meditate each day? Mm, yeah. And how long? Uh, that differs. I would say ideally something like an hour, sometimes less. But um, mm. yeah. And do you ever have trouble uh, sitting? Yeah, well, I find it challenging to find the time to practice. But then uh, the good thing within the Tibetan tradition is there is this idea of commitments that you just, mm. you know, take on yourself a commitment to do this or that practice every day. So I kind of have to do it. Um, so then it becomes a habit. And I do feel that it helps me to sleep. So I almost never have trouble sleeping. Yeah. Um, maybe because I, I, well, I practice when I wake up and I practice when I go to sleep. So I will have automatically a little bit of that uh, sanity in my day. <laughs> yeah, I'm asking because I, I don't practice meditation in a particular tradition, but I do try to meditate each day. but. I noticed that sometimes some even some days or weeks or months it goes easier and i'm looking forward to it and sometimes i just either i don't do it or i and i was wondering where where does this resistance come from do you have any idea what that what that could uh, be in a general sense yeah um like i mean that let, let's let's ask the question in a different way if it's good for you shouldn't you want it uh, <laughs> yeah don't we guess, want what's good for us yeah but i think it's a conflict between maybe what feels good at that moment um and um what you know is good for you on the longer term but somehow doesn't feel immediately like okay this is gonna make me feel good or or feelings that even like I have to do this other stuff now and then I am so exhausted I just have to go to bed I mean that's usually my my struggle is just um, one in which I feel like I just don't have the time because all these other things are more important but of course in a way that's resistance really um, <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, but it, it so for me that's why the commitment thing kind of works because it sort of I have to show up to it every day, no matter what. And then I, I don't really have this choice to back out it with all kinds of excuses. Because I do know that if I do do it, it does make me feel better. Um, uh, even, yeah, I, I think pretty much it does make me feel better, um, no matter what. Because um, there's just something about this being in touch with myself um that's just profoundly helpful um but of course it's the then time that i cannot spend doing other stuff um so if i have a very long to-do list then it's it's sometimes really challenging to to say now i have to practice meditation even if i know it feels good then i still feel bad about the long to-do list and the other stuff <laughs> 
So yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a challenge. There's this saying, right? That if you if you have the time, uh, meditate half an hour. If you don't have the time, meditate an hour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's true, but it's sometimes really hard to convince yourself that that's that that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As a neuroscientist, I think you're your assistant professor. Um, how do you look at meditation from a neuroscientific perspective? Yeah, so I've been uh, sort of working mostly on the cognitive mechanisms underlying meditation. And of course, this is still a really difficult question because what do you mean with meditation we have not um, succeeded at coming up with a single definition well i guess anyone who's involved in meditation will not have a single definition because there are so many kinds of meditation practice but a lot of the scientific investigation has really um, focused on um, meditation uh, that's focused on the breath um, and just you could say concentration meditation and then trying to investigate what's going on there. Um, so there's some evidence that this helps you to um, improve the quality of your attention, although it's really not that dramatic. There's some evidence that it's helpful to deal with maladaptive thought patterns, uh, such as depressive rumination. It's, it's actually fairly effective for people suffering from depression because um, I think the, the, a fundamental concept that's been um, um, developed in this, uh, this theory of um, meditation, but also more generally psychotherapy, is this idea of decentering to realize that you are not your thoughts. And yeah. as I said before, like this is a very fundamental realization when people start meditating. And I think a very important one that's also therapeutic. So um, that's a big one. And that also has implications for something we've had conversations about in, uh, before, which is how people deal with pain. I think yeah. their mindfulness practices have been very uh, effective to help people just focus on the pain, but not the other stuff that we typically have going on around pain. Um, uh, the, the extra suffering of this is never going to finish. This is terrible. I'm so sorry for myself um, or all of those things. And to help you manage that. Um, yeah. I understand you focus more on the cognitive modeling. Um, uh, but do you, are you aware of evidence that, that uh, meditation leads to physical changes like uh, uh, changes in the brain? Um, well, anything you do changes your brain. So that's <laughs> so of... yes, that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in a way that's not so special. Um, uh, there is some evidence. Uh, um, well, I mean, there's been a ton of studies, but I think most of them are just like, okay, when you practice meditation, this part of your brain lights up. And you know, there yeah. are so many assumptions in that kind of research that it's hard to say what it really means. Um, in the pain literature, actually, uh, that is among the more convincing research that then shows that you, the way you process pain stimuli changes. Um, so that, I would say, makes sense. There is some literature, um, some interesting uh, literature in the field of neurophenomenology, where they suggest that um, you're better able to... Um, 
regulate um, or upregulate or downregulate um, the activation of the default network, which is thought to be especially involved in self-related thinking so that you can sort of turn it off, turn it down a little bit and um, be less just constantly preoccupied with yourself. So I'd say that those are some of the things that stand out in my mind. Now, there's also a little bit of literature that suggests you it's um, mindfulness training. When it reduces stress, it also uh, reduces these stress markers in your body like cortisol and um, um, even a bit of the tele telomere, telomere endings or stuff like that. But I don't really know very much about that. But, um, you know, it's hard to see whether that's just because the stress is reduced and, you know, that's what you see. Um, and so any intervention that would do that would help um, or whether it's something meditation specific. I, I don't really believe that there is something, you know, magical happening to your brain. But actually, in a way, it is magical when you are slowly slowly changing your brain so that it's naturally less self-preoccupied and more pro-social and altruistic i think that's actually fantastic but it's not like some people believe that you develop some third eye magical stuff and i i don't really think there's much evidence for that nor that it's actually really necessarily that helpful for for the world so um yeah yeah yeah, what, what I do see in, in uh, some research on meditation, but it, this also goes for, for yoga or uh, Tai Chi or other such practices. Uh, a lot of these studies are uh, maybe people get a two-week course or something. Uh, I don't know who the teachers are of that course, so I cannot assess that. And I always wonder just in my mind, if I just look at Tai Chi, I think it took me of course, in the beginning, I think with any practice in the beginning, you have some insights or you have some realizations that also motivate you to go on. But um, I think I really started to notice some deeper levels uh, after maybe two or three years. Yeah. Uh, not with meditation, maybe meditation, maybe I would say if for an average person, if you if you commit to meditating uh, for a month even every day even just five or ten minutes i think you will start to notice some changes already but it's something that this it's not you don't do it for the benefits uh, immediate benefits right it's just more a practice that you just continue and the more you continue the more you uh, well it's just like science right uh, we quoted you dilder in some episodes before the who further high cake who groter it lake the farther you see the bigger it is yeah. So the more you know, the, the more you know what you don't know and how much probably you don't know that you don't know. Yeah. And I think in the end, what I've seen um, with people that I think are real practitioners is that really they develop some kind of a thing that as uh, I, I think Richie Davidson, uh, a sort of famous meditation researcher was also saying like, they develop a kind of a sense of sparkly personality, um, kind of uh, flexibility, mental flexibility and yeah. um, uh, kindness and compassion and sort of palpable peacefulness. And we don't really know how to measure this, but I mean, that's something that is seems to be really at the, um, 
uh, at the core of it. But yeah, as I said, it's really hard to develop ways to measure it. Although that's one of the things that I'm working on in my lab is to try to measure um, what I call mental stickiness. So how much do you get stuck on um, negative emotions, especially when somebody sort of tries to insult you or when you in, uh, undergo some challenges, are you able to just let them go? As uh, There's a wonderful um, Tibetan Buddhist teacher called Khandra Rinpoche and she always says, keep it short, you know? And I think um, that that's a really wonderful life advice as well. Like don't just indulge in all these um negative emotions i mean it's you it's you don't have to repress them but you also don't have to prolong them um, yeah yeah so what does uh uh what does distraction look like in your mothers or you call it mind wandering right mm -hmm. yeah so um well in my so in in uh, let's backtrack for a moment in in my whole research it's it's really based on the mind wandering field and in the mind wandering fields um, the way we uh, study this is we give somebody a very boring task and then every minute or so we ask them what they're thinking about <laughs> and then um, you get these uh, answers and you find that roughly half of the time people are thinking not about the task but about other stuff um, especially when in the task they are sort of prompted to um, think about themselves that's a very um, leading to a lot of mind wandering um, and then actually that also impairs um, cognitive function. It makes it more difficult to remember stuff in between. So um, uh, yeah, and then we've been trying to formalize that in computer models. And then the way uh, this thought process works is um, basically we simulate doing the task, but then we have this other thought process and a wonderful colleague of mine called David Meyer called it the thought pump. We have this thing in our mind that constantly sort of pumps thoughts in our minds. And um, when it's um, uh, this ruminative self-related thinking process, then it tends to be very sticky. Um, so it, it's uh, once you're stuck in it, it's very difficult to get out. Whereas if um, it's more um, more adaptive, then you just um, uh, it, it it you know comes in and then um, after a little while it it just disappears again automatically, so you don't have to worry too much about it. So that's roughly how we would implement it as a computer model, and then uh, we would make predictions for how this would affect performance on different tasks. And then you find that if you implement this more sticky process, then um, it impairs task performance a bit more. Um, so this is why, um, according to our models, at least people with depression have more difficulty in um, concentrating on tasks and doing them well. So, yeah. Yeah, when, when you're depressed, then it's, uh, it's very hard to imagine. I think I haven't been depressed, fortunately, but from what I know about it, it's literally this, mon if you say thought pump, it's basically like this, this monster somewhere that, pumps these negative thoughts uh, uh, in your mind, right? So that's something, it's not just like, um, that's that's maybe also an interesting issue, maybe for another time, but the distinction between the psychological and the neurological, mm. because in psychological, if you speak about psychological processes, often it, it um, uh, we have this term omdenken in, in, in Holland, but I don't know what it is in English. You can like think your way out of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you can think your way out of depression or you just can 
can uh, just by positive thinking, which is positive thinking is of course very good, I think, but it's quite different from the exercise that you described before, right? Where you really engage with an experience mm. where yeah. I think positive thinking is just, if you say, well, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire. It's not, it, there's no yeah. groundedness. There's no connection with, um, I mean, your body knows that you're not a millionaire. <laughs> Yeah, although I guess both can have their uh, their their merits, um, or I would say that we're talking here about three different approaches. The, the the neurological approach is often just to give medication, which will have an effect on the mind, but it will also have um, side effects, which makes them less preferable to some people. Uh, sometimes, however, I think you do need those to because there is no way you can even begin with the uh, psychological approaches because it's just too challenging. Um, and then there is the approach of, I think, a lot of meditation practices where you would engage with the thoughts and, and, and often engage with them through non-action, through just observing them and letting them be. And then they sort of will disappear on their own accord. And then there is more active approaches like um, fantasizing that you're mentioning where you're practicing these maybe more positive um, self-beliefs, which are very challenging for people with depression. I'm actually right now involved in a clinical trial where we're comparing the effects of mindfulness and uh, this positive thinking interventions. And um, uh, my suspicion is that they are both helpful, but maybe for different kinds of people and different kinds of situations. So that's what we're exploring here. Yeah, as perhaps as a last topic, I am really fascinated by neuroscience and uh, uh, the fundamental uh, neuroscience. I don't know how far we will get uh, in, the, in the time that we have left now, but because I basically because I come from philosophy and, and for a long time, I've just been uh, in the humanities and there, there's also, I mean, I'm sure there's a certain picture of philosophers and the humanities from, you know, natural scientists, but there's also a picture of science from the humanities, like, well, they're just positivist and only, uh, well, not at all what uh, the impression I get with uh, speaking with you, right? Mm -hmm. um, so um, a lot of that stuff is well about Plato's cave stuff, right? Uh, the the phenomenological the phenomenological world like the world of our experience and how this relates to an actual world i would say mm -hmm. or if some some philosophers even doubt if there is one or mm -hmm. if there is one can we know it or you know mm -hmm. there are all different kinds of different kinds of takes on it but then um well uh, we spoke uh, some some years before and, and you recommended this uh a book called brain facts mm -hmm. uh, which i will also put in the description because i think if anyone wants to learn just the basics about the brain i mean it's brilliant and it's yeah. if you're not english it's probably there in your language as well because it has been translated a lot so the, i just read one quote from it um which is about uh, the relationship between the brain and the external world uh, so the quote goes the world itself has no actual images sounds tastes and smells Instead, you are surrounded by different types of energy and molecules that must be translated into perceptions or sensations. So, um, well, if you need any material for the meditation, <laughs> uh, 
I mean, that this is quite a quote. And just to yeah. check with you, is that is that how you see it as a neuroscientist? Yeah, I would no. say so. Yeah. So there are no so any images is basically anything you see, right? Any shapes, any yeah. uh, colors, everything like that, that that doesn't really exist in the in the external world sounds as well. Well, I mean, I guess it, it, we, we cannot give it an we cannot make ontological claims about this, right? So if, mm. if you, it just says something about how we perceive the world, but that doesn't really mean that it doesn't exist because if, you know, I can, regardless of how I perceive this cup, if I try to, if I drop it, it will break. Yeah. Probably and if I try to push it it, it will um, um, I will feel it so there there's something about the cup there um, that's also different than the cup would be on my screen when it's your cup um, uh, even though they could evoke the same uh, they could you know have the same response in some um, molecules in my eye and then going to my visual cortex so this is all about you know how the cells um in my brain are responding to this outside world. Um, but I, I'd say don't make ontological claims about the outside world. But I think there's a lot of fascinating neuroscience that um, we typically just, you know, study the neuroscience uh, from the outside as if it's about something else. And then we memorize the facts and then get um, grades on the exams. But we don't really think about what does this mean for me as a human being who is living yeah. their life? And one of my favorite things to do on my introduction to the brain course is to talk about this idea of um, predictive coding, how we're constantly um, constructing the world. So the idea of, well, no, or maybe I would say predictive code. Yeah, predictive coding theories um, and just in general, um, the comp uh, contemporary theories of perception are that there is no veridical perception as such, because every time we're perceiving every time I'm perceiving the cup, it's a collaboration between the particular, um, you know, light rays that enter my, my eye and all of that visual information that then collides with the um, ideas that I have about yeah. what I'm going to be seeing. And um, so the kind of things I would expect to see are the kind of things that I will see more easily than the kind yeah. of unexpected things. And so there is this fundamental sort of constantly, I am, as, as uh, Francisco Varela would, uh, would, would say, and there's this beautiful documentary called Monte Grande about his life where he says something like, um, uh, the, the, the bee dreams up the flower and the flower dreams up the bee and then together <laughs> they sort of dance together to form this world and that's sort of yeah. how we're also perceiving right so in a way we're constantly creating the world um, based on on our experiences and yeah. Um, uh, yeah and but at the same time that doesn't mean that the world does not exist like you still will face some serious realities, right? If you um, jump out of the windows, there, there will be some distinct effects. It's not like you're suddenly like you, um, uh, your body is um, not um, um, subject to gravity and all of that yeah. stuff. Yeah, there's a, some philosophers say, well, reality is, you can look at reality as resistance. If you get it, if you grab a cup, then 
it's it's real because you get some resistance and uh, maybe you can also have resistance in a conversation with other people where if you say something you get some pushback or something like that right yeah but i think i think what you're what you're saying is that there's we we walk around with the kind of an internal model of of the world so if if i turn my head i see something else but i in in this internal model i still have this uh you know i know if i uh where i am in space mm. basically yeah. yeah and this internal there's some social psychology experiments where where they also show how strong maybe this is when um I think this was even in in Utrecht in the Netherlands where they have uh, the experiment is that that someone so who is part of the experiment asks uh, somebody at the train station for directions. Uh, then uh, also part of the experiment, some people to to men walk with with a big I don't know a window or something like that. Mm-hmm. So for a moment yeah, yeah. they cannot see uh, the person that asks them directions, but then they change the person. So there's someone walking with them. So, uh, for instance, uh, it changes from a woman uh, uh, like a blonde into a brunette, for instance. And the experiment is, will the person notice this or not? Yeah. yeah. And of course, I'm sure it's somewhere on YouTube. I'll try to find it and put it in the description. You would think, okay, blue eyes, brown eyes, they don't notice. Uh, brunette, uh, blonde, they don't notice either. But at one point they start to switch the gender. So there's there's a small woman and a big man, and uh, that for me that was uh, was such an eye opener because there I mean there are terms like confirmation bias and and everything like that. But it really showed me something about how humans work as well. That there's such a strong tendency to uh, I mean. To, but because what's the alternative you, uh, you would have to think oh am i in the matrix or this this did this person transform or am i part well maybe like if you spoke about the truman show before am i part of an experiment or something like that i think our yeah in everyday world we don't think about that uh, as well but of course we we like to think about this stuff because it's our job <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah no it's fascinating and and i think just entertaining these ideas already can help you be a little bit more flexible with your reality so that when unexpected things happen when especially unexpected disappointments happen you can see them with a little bit more humor and I think for me that that's that's all the gain uh, that that's really wonderful so um, just to come back to my um, conversations and experiments with Tibetan monks I mean what's so distinctive about them is the the vast amount of humor they have they are so playful and i i I just have this hunch that maybe that's also associated with these daily practices of investigating their minds and investigating reality um also in a very playful way but that's a a story um, for a whole different conversation (laughs) with a very special way of debating which almost looks like a a dance and a, or a soccer match at times um uh, but uh, yeah it's uh, i think that really if you are able to just have a bit of that humor that can really go a long way to to help you to take life so seriously um without sort of 
without going off the rails of, of course, but um, having a bit more humor, I think is, is very helpful to be a more happy human being and more adaptive human being that can also be more productive in a way in the world, because then if you're less sort of self preoccupied, you can also be more open and available to others. Thank you very much for speaking with me tonight. And uh, I hope we can speak another time. Yeah, sure. That was fun. <laughs> and thank you for listening. Check out Marike's website for more information on her work. In the description of this episode, you can find some other resources that we talked about. Visit livefromplatoscave.com for more episodes and ways to support this podcast. I hope to see you again next month.